Thank you so much, uh, Pastor Les. And if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to spend both uh, this morning and this afternoon on this particular text. Matthew 18, following your text. At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You got the question? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn, some translations, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, bridles his thoughts, bridles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one, receives one such child. In my name receives, what's the next word? Me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble, is a better translation, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin or the stumbling blocks. Woe to the world for stumbling blocks. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one through whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the, into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, speaking of believers, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that went astray. So it is not the will of my Father... Who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? This morning, I'd like for us to think through the first 14 verses, and then this afternoon, I'd like us to think through verse 15 to 35. And the way I'd like us to do this is I'd, I'd like us to look at this particular picture in front of me. It was the, this is a particular picture uh, from uh, our history that if you go into the rotunda, the capital, uh, you'll see this displayed in 18 by or 12 by 18 foot oil painting that was done by John Trumbull. I love reading history. I just finished um, another one of David McCullough's work uh, called The American Spirit, which is actually a bunch of speeches that he has given over time. And one speech that I read really caught me as he spoke to Hillsdale College a few years ago, and he talked a little bit about this particular picture. And so it caused me to want to look at this picture. And as I look at this particular picture, this is the most viewed picture in the world drawn by any American. And when I look at that picture, it's famous, it hangs at a very important place, but everything about this picture is historically wrong. Everything. 
When you look at this particular picture that we hold up so dear to us, it's Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. But actually, the Declaration of Independence was not signed on July 4th, 1776. It didn't start until August the 2nd. And these men would be coming back and periodically signing the document, and this would go on until 1777. The chairs in the painting are wrong. The doors in the painting are wrong. As you look at this particular picture, the heavy drapes were not there. Against the back wall, you see these flags of, of declaration of independence of America, but they weren't even there. It was eight years after this, 1776, that John Trumbull went into the minister of France from the United States of America, his name was Thomas Jefferson, went into his mansion there in France and they sat down and took a piece of paper and they blocked out what is painted before your eyes. And what they wanted to do was, was give everybody a sense of, of who they were, but everything in this picture is fabricated with one exception. And that is if you were to look very closely, and maybe you can Google this, not now, but very closely, Look at the faces of all the delegates that are there. And by the way, that's even wrong. There are 56 delegates. Here, there's only 47. And of the 47, John Dickinson is in here. And John Dickinson is one of the two that refused to sign the Declaration of Independence. But when you look at the faces of the individuals who are here, you can distinctly see them and call them by name. If you knew them from history. So when I look at this picture, I think it's a lot like, to me, Matthew 18. It's actually like the Gospel of Matthew because we grow up, and as we grow up, we hear Sunday school stories of Jesus walking on the water. We grow up and we hear a Sunday school story about, about Jesus healing someone. We grow up and we hear a story about Jesus touching someone's eyes. And these are all stories, but they're so disconnected. And so I don't know if we really have a, a true understanding, kind of like this picture. There's nothing really true about this picture, except it gives into us an image which causes us to think of the Declaration of, of Independence that began to be signed in, on August the 2nd. So when I read the Gospel of Matthew, I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, this is a, a drama. It's a six-part drama in the Gospel of Matthew. So when you pick up a Gospel, it's very important that you read it distinctively, and then later on you read it horizontally through the other synoptic Gospels and then even through John. But stick first with Matthew. Matthew has a message directed by the Holy Spirit. And as Matthew is directed by the Holy Spirit to put together a, a theological biography of Jesus Christ, we have to catch his vision, catch his burden. And that's how we're going to understand Matthew chapter 18. But we don't understand it unless we have this backdrop that is accurate about the gospel of Matthew. So when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you have the first four chapters. And in the first four chapters, we find who Jesus is, why he came, and what he came to do. That's what he does. He puts it together in four chapters, amazing stories, but stories to help us understand these three aspects. And then from five to ten chapters, you find the first year of Jesus' ministry. Sermon on the Mount, all the way to the Sermon, chapter 10, of mission as he sends his apostles out. During this year... There is incredible popularity. In fact, just turn back to chapter 4, if you will, in Matthew, and look 
Very quickly, chapter 4, verse 23 says he goes through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. His fame is spread throughout all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted, various diseases, pains, oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them all and great crowds, plural, everywhere he is going, he's inundated with crowds. Mark 6 says there were so many people they didn't have time to eat. They couldn't find a place that's private. And then when you go over to chapter 9 of Matthew that sort of closes this section before he gives his sermon message to his apostles, chapter 9 at the very end, verse 35, Jesus goes through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction, same things he said in 423. So it puts a sort of a bookend, it's an inclusio on this first year of Jesus' ministry. His popularity is amazing. People from everywhere are going after him and he has no time even to stop and have a private meal with his 12 disciples. This is the first year of his ministry. His second year takes a huge turn. In Matthew chapter 11 and 12, you see this turn that's taking place and opposition begins to overwhelm Christ. And they start to say to him very publicly in front of other people, the leaders of Israel start to say that Beelzebul is the one that is motivating this guy. It's not from heaven, it's from hell. It becomes very open in the opposition. And this, by the way, just so you're aware, John the Baptist has been sitting in prison for over a year. And this section begins in chapter 11 with John the Baptist. And he sends some disciples of himself over to Jesus to say, I don't get this. Are you really the Messiah? I mean, what I was told to proclaim is that the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to be king. He's going to set up the kingdom of God. And so I was telling everybody, my ministry was telling everyone this. And now all of this opposition and all the leadership are saying, you are of Beelzebul. So John the Baptist, sitting in prison, sends his disciples to Jesus and, say, and says, please find out, are you him? In this opposition, the gospel of Matthew begins to turn. So that the end of Jesus' second year ministry... You have these parables, which are called mysteries of the kingdom that begin to open up and say, these are things that you did not realize always in the mind of God, but now are going to be revealed about what it's going to actually look like because there is wholesale rejection by the nation of Israel. So in the third year of Jesus' ministry, chapters 14 to 20, it begins with the death of John the Baptist in chapter 14. He dies. He's killed because of Herodias' daughter's dance. And so you find in chapter 14, all the way to chapter 20, you find the crowd still following. The opposition now for the first time begins to go against him in very public ways where even in the opposition in chapter 11 and 12, it was a little veiled, but now it's no longer veiled. But you find something in these chapters where Jesus gets alone with his disciples because this is the, these are the final months of his life. And in the final months of his life, he is going to pour himself into these disciples who are one day going to carry the banner for the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world to all of the nations. And so this third year of Jesus' ministry gets the most press, if you will, from Matthew. And you see all of these chapters given over and amazing stories as Jesus, Jesus pours himself. Almost every chapter but chapter 20, you find Peter's name 
mentioned and things are happening with Peter as the leader of these disciples, except for chapter 20. But here in this third year, Jesus now concentrates on his 12. And I'll come back to that in just a moment, but then you have his Passion Week, which is one week, and then after that, Matthew does what no other gospeler does, and that is he gives a Galilean commission. All the rest give a Jerusalem commission. This is an amazing story. It's a six-part drama. But where I want us to focus today is I want us to focus today on this, these final months of Jesus' ministry. And so he's going to pour himself into the disciples like never before. And part of that is going to be a sermon, not found anywhere else in the scriptures. Anywhere else in the world will you find this sermon like it's given to us here in Matthew chapter 18. So when I look at Matthew chapter 18, I want us today to think about the context in which Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. In fact, and if you want to turn over to chapter 19, at the end of the sermon, look at chapter 19, verse 1, if you will. 19, verse 1, it says this, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, that's his sermon in chapter 18, when he finished the sermon, he goes away from Galilee, he crosses the Jordan River, And he goes down on the east side of the Jordan River all the way down to Jericho and then crosses back over to Jericho. And in chapter number 21, he's going to enter Jerusalem and as the king. This is called, some Bibles call it the triumphal entry, but we call it the tragic entry because the people didn't accept him. So he's getting ready in chapter 18 to take this journey from Capernaum in Matthew all the way down over to Jericho. And so these words are significant words. They're significant words because they're not just for the 12. He's speaking to the 12, but he's also speaking through the 12. He's speaking to the 12 in their context, but Matthew writes this probably mid-40s, and as he writes this, it's going through the disciples to the church, to us today, as we listen and as we hear and make sure we have the proper, the proper context. So let's look together, and we just have a moment to go through a few of these things together in the first 14 verses to try to help us. The very first thing I see about this message on humility, and of all things, I'm thinking so I said to somebody, I said, you know, how do, how do you stand up and preach a message on humility? I mean, who is qualified to do this? But this is the message. And it opens with this amazing question. It says, at that time, interesting in your text, most English texts say at that time. And you'll go through Matthew and it, it'll say the same thing in a number of chapters at that time. And yet there, it's very specific here in, in chapter 18. It says in that very hour, what hour, Jesus? Well, you have to go back to chapter 17 and in verse number 24, he's in Capernaum and he's probably at Peter's house. And there's a, a story there about t- Peter and does your master pay taxes? And so the, the tax people leave Peter's home and walk away. And as they walk away from Peter, Peter's home at that very hour, the disciples are going to ask Jesus this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But what's interesting to me is if you look horizontally and move away from Matthew into Mark chapter 9 and into Luke in chapter 9, it will say this, that while they were traveling, and you'll, in chapter number 17, while they were traveling to Capernaum, they were discussing among themselves which of them was the greatest. 
Matthew does not use it that way. Matthew uses it at 18.1 where finally one of the disciples gets enough courage to come with the disciples and say, you know, Master, we'd like to ask you this question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In their mind, they've already been discussing who among them was the greatest. Who is the top dog of the 12? Jesus really needs me. If it wasn't for me, you guys wouldn't even rate. That's what they're discussing. So they say to him, okay, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I love what one commentator said. It's too bad here for the disciples because they asked the wrong question. The question is not who is the greatest. The question should have been, Jesus, how can we serve you? But really, that's not the question. They are just consumed with this idea of greatness. They are consumed with the world's concept of, I am the number one person in this group. In fact, without me, it doesn't, it won't click, it won't work. Then notice what Jesus does in in verse number two, which I think is really incredible. Jesus is going to say to them from verse two down to verse number four, he's going to say to them, let me, let me help you change your thinking. Because when people begin to speak in this kind of language or to think in this kind of language, that has to be changed. And so what the Lord does in verse number two, he's in Peter's home. And so probably a child of Peter, the apostle Peter, he calls this child, puts him in front of him that all the disciples would know. And he says to them in verse number three, truly, I say to you, unless you change, unless you turn And become like children. He probably holds his hand out and points this direction to the child. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And if a little child stands before adults, there's a shyness. You know what that's like. I I was just uh, last week at uh, Cedarville University and they were having a very special chapel day. It was an awesome chapel day for Veterans Day. Um, and they brought up a second grader to lead 4,000 people in the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. So his grandfather and I had a, a lot in common besides the same age. And we were talking about our grandkids. I said, well, what happened to Hunter? And he said, well, he said he practiced it every day before he would go to bed at night. He would practice, I pledge allegiance to the flag. But when he got up there, He said, I pledge allegiance to the flag, and nothing else came out. He's got this little tie on and this little vest, and his hair is combed, and he's just standing there. And then we're halfway through, and he goes to the second line, and he's well-miked. So we're almost done, and he's, I pledge allegiance to the flag. The United States of America. It's very cute. But you know, He said to me, he said, he got in front of all these people and these adults and just froze. And you can imagine Jesus taking Peter's child and bringing him in front of all of these eyes, these men. And there's a shyness there. There's a timidity there. There's no concern for status. There's no concern for position. There's a vulnerability. There's a humility And he says, now look at this child, unless you guys change. Now look what he says. Become like this children. You will not even enter 
You will not enter. You will not even get into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what they were asking. They were asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And, and Jesus puts this child in front of them and says, now look at the way he's responding. This child's responding this way. There's a humility. There's a, 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 there's a vulnerability. There's a tenderness here. And I want you to know that you can't even get into the kingdom of heaven unless there is this tenderness. And then he makes this statement in verse number four, and, and the ESV sadly doesn't translate the first word of the Greek text, which is therefore. Now, let me give to you, therefore, whoever humbles himself, and now for the first time, you begin to understand what humility is. Humility is the surrender of self. Humility is the bridling of self. And he says this, whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only is this commodity called humility necessary, a necessary requirement to get into the kingdom, it'll also distinguish everyone in the kingdom and you will be great. It's not determined on those horrible seas, you know, counting accomplishments, competing with others, condemning my brothers. In our minds, we do that. We, we have categories in our mind. We have external categories. When we walk into a room, who is and who is not? And where do I fit? It determines the way we drive our cars or even cars that we purchase or houses that we live in. There's this, there's this incredible worldly concept among Jesus' disciples. And this, the disciples have to be taught this lesson that the requirement to get in is the, 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 the really condition that really causes people to be great in the kingdom of heaven. It has nothing to do with what you acquire on this earth. It has nothing to do with what you were born into. It has everything to do with you are able to surrender yourself. And when I look at this passage of scripture, notice he moves in verse number five. And again, there's a word not translated and, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This shows you that every single person who is a disciple, no matter where they are on the spectrum, newly born into the family of God, walking with God, somebody walking with God, but weakly fell into sin. Now they're out of it, yet they're struggling with the guilt and what I cause in the name of Jesus Christ. And those who are mature, all of us are to receive one another because when we do that, we receive Jesus. What's interesting to me is the message that Jesus gave at the end of his first year. Turn back to chapter 10 and look at one verse in chapter 10. At the very end of this message, the mission statement, look at 1040. It says this, whoever receives you, as these disciples go out on their mission, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him that sent me. This incredible triune connection between the Father, the Son, the Spirit. So when you come back to chapter 18, so Jesus will say here, it receives me when you receive a brother or sister, which means if you do not receive a brother or sister, you are not receiving Jesus. What, a, what a, an amazing statement on the surrender of self. It's an amazing statement. 
But then he moves from how we think to our actions. And this is really an amazing thing here, what Jesus does. Verse number six, but whoever causes one, not a whole group, not a whole church, but just cause one of these little ones, notice, who believe in me, he's moving from the child metaphor to those who are believing disciples, and he calls them little ones. And if you look at verse number 14, that's how he's going to end this section about my father wants these little ones not to perish. So you got the little ones speaking of disciples. So in verse number six, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Some of your translations say sin. It's scandalon. It's the idea of a, they, they stumble, they trip. You cause them to trip, to fall. You mean disciples can cause other disciples to trip and fall? Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. Whoever one of you insiders causes one of these little disciples, these vulnerable ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for you to be excommunicated from the church. Is that what it says? No. It would be better for that disciple to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Boy, that's a strange strong statement. It is better for that one who causes others to stumble by their pattern of life. It would be better for that disciple to have physical death than it would be to cause one of these little ones because of the pattern of life of that individual to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You see, it's, it's, to me, brothers and sisters, it's, it's important as I study through this, and I've been teaching through the Gospel of Matthew all this semester in seminary, and I think I've been overwhelmed by just going through chapter 18. I love what Wilkins says. He says this, and I quote, Jesus demonstrates that his community is responsible for the pattern of life they live before others. It will not cause them to stumble. Little ones are new disciples or weak and defenseless and vulnerable. They look at the pattern of mature disciples, those disciples who have preceded them, and they become highly susceptible to following their example. Now, can I give you a grandpa illustration? Is it okay to do that? This is great. So you come to our house and you'll see things that you haven't seen in our house for years or little trucks little cars and, and books, lots of books. But these books are not the kind of books that are in my library. These books have on the front of them, there's a yellow one. And, and there's a baby elephant. It says baby animals. So I sit down with a grandkid or two and I open this yellow book up and they sit next to me and that pacifier is going in and out of their mouth as they're looking. This is an elephant. You know what elephants do? Hey, he looks at me and I go, that's my trunk, in case you didn't know, all right? Hey, we're grandparents, all right? So that's what what elephants do. He looks back down, turn the page. This is a penguin. Second one, second picture, penguin. Now, how are you going to do this with a kid? You just kind of walk around like this, you know? It's a penguin. He doesn't laugh at me like you just did. He just keeps sucking on him, looks back down. Here is a lion. What does a lion do? Roars. 
versus a dog. What does a dog do? <laughs> They've never seen an elephant. They've never seen an, a penguin. Has, has anybody ever seen a real lion in Africa? You've seen it at the zoo, haven't you? you know, how does that son know that this is an elephant? Because I did what? I said, this is an elephant. This is what the elephant does. How does he know this is a penguin? Because I acted very foolish and waddled and showed him this is what a penguin is. How does he know what a lion? He's never seen a lion. But he knows a lion roars. You see, the little one is totally transfixed on this book of baby animals, listening to me as I give to him what they are. And when I turn to different animals, like the sheep, he doesn't take his pacifier out and go, woof, woof, and put it back in. He only does that for the dog. What does the sheep do? Bah. How does he know that? Because I told him it went that way. Now, men and women, I give you a very simple illustration to help you understand that when you come to the community of faith and somebody comes to faith in Christ and they walk in, they have no idea what is, what is A to B. What, what, how do you put this together? See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and really struggle to put this together. Oh, we know all that. He'll, he'll catch on later. Really? Really? And then we sing songs together. And as we heard today, we sing songs. And can you imagine somebody shoving their hands in their pocket? I'm not going to sing that song because I don't like it. Right behind them is a little disciple. Whoa. So that's how you do it. Or the little disciple walks out and he hears a person say to another person, boy, you know, the preacher really went long today. Pastor Brent never goes long, so it's always me, okay? <laughs> preacher really went long today. Oh, really? Well, what, what is a preacher supposed to do? Or you hear Pastor Paul say, you know, this is going to be so exciting. We're going to have small groups get together right after and be able to discuss all kinds of things together. And yeah, you know, I just, there's a time element in my life. I don't have time for the brothers and sisters. Or a Thanksgiving service. You know, do you think our government says that we can have a Thanksgiving day? where we can actually give thanks to the Lord. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll gather together and we'll, we'll sing and we'll, we'll give thanks to the Lord. Really? I mean, how does, a, how does a little disciple know what to do? If you don't know, then that may mean that you need to think about finding a little one or being a part of making a little one. That's Matthew 28. If you're at the place where you say, well, it really doesn't matter. Well, well, all you need to do is, here's a great, great, okay. So I have one grandson. I won't say which one is the first one born. I won't say which one. <laughs> so he's crying at the table. I said, give it to grandpa. Grandpa, take care of it. It's, you know, relax. So I take him, put him in my hand. I have a Coke right here. And so I take the pacifier and I dip it into the Coke. <laughs> You should see it. <laughs> then, then I have a talking to by my son-in-law and daughter. Now, now Dad, this is not going to work. <laughs> and privately, they're saying, who is that guy? <laughs> you know, you, you just stop and think. 
taking a little one and making sure they're, they're eating healthy. You're making sure things are right. You're teaching them all the time and the energy and the effort going into making these little ones who believe in me not to stumble. Well, I have my rights. I, I want you to know I can do this because there isn't a command in the Bible not to do that. That's true. That's true. But your pattern of life is preaching a message to all of the little ones, to all the disciples. And then he takes a little side view in verse number 17, and he says, or verse 7, excuse me. He says, woe to the world. He moves away from the insiders and goes to the outsiders. And he says, woe to the world for the stumbling blocks. And then he makes this statement. Do you see it in your Bible? For it is necessary. That these temptations come. Wait a second. It is necessary that stumbling blocks come. Yeah, because you got to connect it with chapter 13, the parable sermon. So turn back to chapter 13. Why is it necessary that disciples face stumbling blocks? All disciples. The parable of parables is a sower and the soil. And he explains that in verse 18, 13, 18, when he says, here's the parable of the sower. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is that which is sown along the path. Soil number two, as for that which is sown on, stone, on rocky ground, stony ground, this one hears the word and immediately receives it with what? Joy. This is great. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on the count of the world and word, immediately he stumbles. There's the word. He, there's a stumbling block. What is happening in chapter 18? Jesus reminds them of what he said back in chapter 13. Remember, it is very necessary for stumbling blocks to come because some people look like Christians. Some people look like disciples. Some people are just excited about everything. They have joy. And all of a sudden, you let things like persecution and difficulties come into their life. And now you're going to find out if these are really true blue believers. It is necessary that the stumbling blocks happen. A little later on, you're going to find out what these stumbling blocks do in the life of a Christian. But we won't go there at this time. Just to say, it's necessary. But woe to the one in the world through whom the temptation comes. And then back, he says, verse number 8 and 9, to the insiders. It's almost like a footnote in verse 7. And then back, 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life than with one eye, two eyes, and be thrown into the hell of fire. You see... It's radical amputation in the life of the disciple. It's better for you to amputate a physical member of your body than it is for you to lead people astray who claim to follow Jesus. The incredible weight upon us as disciples. And in verse 10. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. You know, it'd be very easy to say, man, I have to do this radical amputation. I can't do this. I can't do that because people's lives are wild. I mean, I, I'm not getting this at all. And we could turn around and we start to despise, look down on, condemn. I, I don't like being in this spot. I mean, I've, I've got a life too, you know. <laughs> See that you do not despise 
one of these little ones. One of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Man, I've heard so many expositions on this about babies having angels. And all those kinds, he's speaking of those who believe. And those who believe, it says here, they see the face of my father who is in heaven. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. All you have to do is turn back to chapter 4 and look at Jesus when he faced Satan and the three temptations. At the end of that, it says this in chapter 4, verse 11. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Listen, if the Son of God needed angels ministering to him, we need that too. So Hebrews 1.14, the angels are ministering spirits for all those who inherit salvation. You say, whoa. I'm not saying that every one of you has an angel. I have affectionately said, I know my dad has four, one on each bumper of his car, the corner. (laughs) But I will say to you, brothers and sisters, that the point being taken here is this. He doesn't say how that's done except to say that these angels are ministering spirits and they see the Father's face. The point is this. Every believer matters to the Father. That's the point. And he has ministering spirits. And look at Ephesians 6, and you'll see the warfare that takes place. Or read in Daniel 10, you'll see the warfare that takes place with the ungodly angels and the righteous angels and all that's taking place. It's far above me, except to say this. There are ministering spirits who are ministering in behalf of the Father for your sake. And every person matters to the Father. Verse 12 and 13. And so what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. Why don't he leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go search for the one who went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety and nine that never went astray. We say, wait a second, wasn't this used by Jesus in Luke 15? Oh yeah, it was used to the Pharisees and the Sadducees with a trilogy of parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the rebellious son, the prodigal son. And it's to unsaved. Jesus often will take the same parable and refashion it and meet its context. So we read distinctively within Matthew 18, and he takes the parable of a hundred sheep. One of them is lost. He is speaking of true disciples, and one of them has stumbled, gone astray. So what does the guy do? He leaves the 99, and he finds it. Truly, I say, he rejoices over it more than the 99 who never went astray. This is not a term of which is more valuable. It is a term of restoration. He's so excited that he has found the one that's gone astray. He brings it back. Not that that's more valuable than the other 99. And that's going to open up the door for what we speak about tonight. Because not only is he going to retrain, retrain their thinking and retrain actions and patterns of life, but he's also going to say this. A, a community that's truly humble will not leave strays by themselves. And then he makes this statement, verse 14. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one, one of these little ones should perish. I love that because to me it's eternal security that I am saved as a lamb. And it's the Father's will that as a lamb I will never be lost. But the, but the point here is this. Though they will never be lost, God uses the community to work as shepherds to look out over and say, hey, there's one's going to stray. There's one. Let's go after Let's go get them. Let's get him here. 
when I, I thought about how to close a message. So I wanted to give to you a story. And here's the story about a spiritual giant here at Colonial Baptist Church. This man was saved from a wild lifestyle, both he and his wife, many years ago. They could not afterwards do enough for the Lord. So they joined Church One. And they served and were severely hurt by the bickering of the fellowship. As young Christians, they didn't know what that meant. They said, well, let's go find another one. So they joined Church Two. And that church almost immediately split from problems they had been having before they ever got there. So, well, let's go find another church. They went to Church Three. And within just a few years, the pastor had run off with his secretary and left the church in total disarray. They joined Church Four. And the community was so self-focused that they never felt like they could get in. They're outsiders. So my dad started Colonial Baptist Church, this church, in 1979. And when we were finally asked to come here, I came and we needed a, we found a bus. It was a white bus, a big white bus. And, and we, needed, we needed a sign on the sign of it. This guy happens to be a sign painter. So my dad said, you know, I know, I know a guy from my earlier days of ministry, and uh, he's not going to church now. But let's go over, let's just drive, drive it over there and let's, let's go talk with him. So dad and I went to his home. A big man came to the door and flatly welcomed us. No smile, no life in his walk. He said he'd paint our church bus. The fee was high. His attitude was sour. And I said, dad, forget him. Let's go find somebody else. No longer after this, mid-80s, this man had a severe heart attack. Amazing, he even survived. He lived through it. My dad went to visit him and again invited him to CBC in a little schoolhouse. <laughs> they had now moved into 2221 Centerville Turnpike. So the man said, well, I'll come, but I, every church I attend, they fight among themselves full of pride, and you definitely cannot trust any pastor. All my dad said was, well, you've known me and my family for 20 years. Our church is full of people who have been changed by grace. Why don't you come? Several months later, during the opening song service, in walks this man with his wife, a mere shell of a man. His face is gray and sunken. His wife is without a smile. They sat on the very back row. When the message is over, we prayed. I looked up. They had already gone. Amazingly, next Sunday, the same thing. Start singing into the back row. They came when that prayer was finished. They were gone. But it wasn't long before he started to move up a few rows. They stayed to the last song. Then they started mingling with people and talking, and finally they ended up joining the church. Now, this man loved to play golf, so he would take me three times a month golfing. Sorry, VBTS. He golfed, I muffed over and over again. But we would often talk as we walked along the way. And I would talk to him a lot about his life in the past and what God had done and he said, I came because of your dad. He was a tried and proven man. But I stayed because you preach the word and because these people really want to model grace. And God has done a great work in my life. I said, well, you know, Ray, we need uh, somebody to teach the Bible on Saturday mornings. Would you be interested in doing that? Walking on the, we were walking on the golf course. He said, you know, I think the Lord might want me to start teaching again. So for 20 years, Ray Knowles 
led the men's Bible class on Saturday morning. It was a joy for me to preach his funeral because when I preached his funeral, there were so many men who came and said, this is, this is what Reynolds said, and this, this is how he affected my life, and this is how he influenced mine, and this, this is what took place, and on and on and on it went. And then I thought about this message. What is humility? Humility is the self-surrender of the community in two ways. Number one, we don't think in external categories. When we walk into this church, we're not looking now, wonder where she is and what she's wearing or what he is doing. We have no external, external categories when we walk in. And number two, we work Monday through Saturday in, on our life patterns so that our life patterns will lead our brothers and sisters on a path of Christ-likeness. Because I think there's a lot of Ray and Wilma Knowles out there that are not in church because they've been to church one, and they went to church two, and they went to church three, and they went to church four, and said, this, this, this is not working. This is not working. But grace always works. Grace works. Would you stand with me, please? Tonight, I'd like to take the last part of chapter 18 and deal with how to restore people who have been shackled by stumbling blocks. And so I hope together we can look at this text of scripture. If you're here today and maybe you're in this category of struggling, then I'm glad you've come today because, you know, humility is not only the requirement to get in, but the humility is also that which God says is great in my view. You can be born into a royal family, but you can only get into the royal family through this way. And faith is the mark of humility. It is surrender. Surrender. Not my way, your way. And so I hope that as we think about Matthew 18 and what Jesus is instilling in these last months before he goes to the cross, that we will get it. Thank you, Lord, for these moments. Thank you for the joy of sharing Christ. Thank you for truth. And I pray that you would bless us today, that we would think upon this message to the 12, just days, months, a few months before Jesus is going to be crucified. His last message of the last year is going to be the end times. But this message is how to live until then. So would you help us to be people who trace the walk of Jesus and the words of Jesus. Help us in our own thinking, not to think with external categories, rich, poor, ethnically, socially, appearance, bank accounts, cars, homes, jobs, Help us not to think that way. And then, Lord, help us to act out life patterns that would be healthy for our body. It's in Jesus' name. Pastor Paul.